happy Saturday. It's July 15th, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in the good old American heartland. Oh, in the American heartland. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City in the depraved East Coast. Things are so much more wholesome here in the Midwest, Michael. Yeah, the land of white bread. And what do you got? You're back home in Kansas? Back home in Kansas. It's 100 degrees by 9 a.m. My son is up playing tennis at 7 a.m. with my old tennis coach. It's like the more things change, the more they stay the same. Oh, wonderful. I'm sure everyone's happy to see you. And I'm happy to see you after our return from our vacation. So we've got a great show today. Not getting to the show. I need to hear. We just got back from two weeks of holidays, so we're very fresh. We basically look like we've had facelifts, Botox, and much cosmetic surgery. How was Portugal? It was great. I was in Comporta, which was fantastic, beginning with the fact that you've got amazing beaches and the Portuguese do it correctly. They do not allow any development within a kilometer of their beaches, so you've got, unlike the Hamptons or on the East Coast or Malibu on the West Coast, you don't have houses cutting you off from the beach. It's just pristine white sand beaches and lots of people hanging out. And I just want to tell you, I surfed. I defied your skepticism, but I was back on the board. So I'm ready for you. Next time you leave Kansas and you stop here on the East Coast, we'll ride the waves together. Baby, you, me, the Rockaways, it's a date. (laughs) Okay. You, me, the Rockaways, it's a date. You, me, and the Ramones. All right. Well, moving on, we have an incredible issue of airmail. Yes, we've got a great show. You've probably read the news lately if you've been paying attention about how how a U.S. Air Force whistleblower has made dramatic new claims for the existence of UFOs. Is it enough to make us believe Rich Cohen, one of our favorite guests, will join us in what you might call a close encounter to tell us if the truth is indeed out there? And then Julian Sands, who was one of the great actors of the past 50 years, died recently while hiking in Southern California. Later, his friend and actor Simon Callow will share his memories of the man and their time together on A Room with a View. And then finally, speaking of movies, there's a terrific new book out on that rarest of things in Hollywood, a fairy tale marriage between two titans of the screen. William Mann, the author of the book, will join us to reveal how a breathtakingly beautiful 20-year-old starlet and a thrice-divorced alcoholic more than twice her age ended up creating a love story for the ages. Ashley, speaking of love story, you and I, where would you like to begin? Let's start with the TikTok, Michael. We've got Rich Cohen, a writer at large for Airmail. We're usually talking to him about things like murder. And we're here with him today to talk about extraterrestrial life, unidentified flying object. I mean, look, if you talk about these things, it no longer classifies you as somebody who reads the National Enquirer. That's a step in the right direction. So we're here to talk to Rich Cohen about why UFOs are cool. Again, welcome, Rich. Thank you. Rich, I read your view from here this week, and I can't decide if this news is too good to be true or too terrifying to be true, or maybe a little bit of both. But bring us up to speed in the latest and greatest with UFOs. Apparently, these are credible now. Well, it's been a slow process that's been going on for the last several years where UFOs and the topic moved from the fringe to the mainstream where it can be enjoyed without shame. And I think it started, uh, what, about five years ago when the story appeared on the front page of the New York Times, written by Leslie King and Ralph. Blumenthal. You have Navy pilots saying that they saw these things. You have video actually from cockpits and can't really tell what they are. So you have this steady drumbeat of revelations. And as a consumer, it's very hard to see what to make of it. And the new thing is a guy who comes out using the whistleblower law. He's a very credible person, has this long resume of very good service in the government. And he comes out and he says that there are government programs to reverse engineer alien craft that have been captured or found crashed or like basically everything you ever heard from a Steven Spielberg movie or something. Actually, he's saying it's real. 
And the problem for most of us is you feel like things were real. You just, there would be no ambiguity about it. And there's all kinds of physical problem with alien spacecraft traveling to us from thousands of years away or thousands of light years away. So it's confusing to know what to make of it. It's not a new subject. It's just that every time there's another revelation, it becomes more credible, harder to dismiss, and it builds on what came before. I like the way you put this all together because you brought all of these sort of disparate examples into something more cohesive and given a little bit of the political context behind it. So give us some of the most recent examples of these. And the modern movement begins with these people think when we started splitting the atom and setting off nuclear weapons, somehow got the attention of people from the other side of the universe for fear of what we were going to do. So that's when real UFOs start. Now, it also coincides with the fear and a panic in the American people about what's coming from the sky. So it makes sense that if it was a fantasy, it would begin then. And it comes all the way up till today. So a lot of the sightings are over nuclear sites. And a lot of people who've worked in the past in some of those nuclear sites actually claim that when they see UFOs over a nuclear site, it shuts down the nuclear missiles. It takes them offline. So there's always been this connection between the nuclear sites and UFOs. And the center of the UFO world is Area 51, which is a place that's become mythological TV shows and everything. But it's a real military testing ground and very close to the nuclear testing range where most of the atomic bombs were tested throughout the Cold War and still stuff going on there. And it's where the high end, very secretive military craft were developed like the U-2 bomber. So it would make sense that people would think they saw something there that was unidentified because it was. My problem with UFOs is basically closest solar system that might have planets that is life is like six or eight light years away. So it would take Maybe 70,000 years going as fast as we've ever gone to get there. And you have a, you have all kinds of physical rules based on Einstein that say you can't go the speed of light. And the closer you get to the speed of light, the harder it is, the more mass you accumulate. So it seems by any understanding we have of the universe, it would be impossible in a, in a reasonable amount of time for us to visit other solar systems or other solar systems to visit us. But when I talk to these people, they say we have a basic misunderstanding of how physical law works and there's a way to warp space time and to jump across time and in my mind i always think of it when i played pac-man when i was a kid you could exit the screen left and reappear on the screen right it's kind of a jump from one edge of the screen to the other edge of the screen it is what a lot of people believe who believe this believe how these ships are working which is they're warping space time folding it and then sort of cutting a path from through the full and jumping a lot of time when you people see UFOs, they don't seem to travel in a straight line. They seem to skip, to jump, like a rock skipping across a pond. And that could also be a result of how they would travel using some kind of way of warping space. It's all crazy. It's all science fiction, but it's coming more and more into the mainstream. Also all science. And when you talk about these government agencies and the existence of which is real, give us a sense of sort of how the powers that be deal with these. You, you talk a lot about seriously important people like the Obamas entertaining the notion that this can be real and they obviously have knowledge of these government programs that we don't, right? I can't believe I sound like this, you guys. Sorry. Go ahead. I know. So the, pro- the problem is that all our lives, I'm 54 years old. I was taught to believe what comes out of the government. The government makes mistakes, but when it makes mistakes, it makes mistakes accidentally. It's not a plan. It's not a plot. So you have these guys that work for the government, are paid by the government, have security clearances, working on secret programs that we were told our entire life didn't exist, that it was just an X-Files fantasy 
suddenly the government acknowledging they do exist and they have exist. And people that are naysayers say, well, they only spend the budget so small, it's only $15 million or so a year or something. Oh, doesn't sound that small to me. But second of all, why is the government doing it at all? And, and why are these people coming out? And then as soon as they come out, they're sort of dismissed as nuts, which is a catch-22, which is you say you want somebody credible saying it, but assume it, as soon as somebody says it, they're no longer credible. So this guy who's just come out, his name is Dave Brush, is very credible. And he says it, it is happening and it does exist. And it's impossible to look at it and to understand what the hell I'm supposed to believe and what the hell is going on. So one theory people have is that it's government disinformation, meaning that let's say we're developing some very high tech weapon or aircraft that's a jump in technology and we're trying to keep it secret as long as possible. Well, if people think it's a UFO, people think it's from another solar system, then let them believe it because that's a good cover. I don't know about that because then you have guys like Dave Grush, you'd have to believe they were sent out on sort of these career suicide missions to spread lies, or they themselves have been lying too, in which case you have a deep, deep problem in the government. And I think what we need is a big, giant ship just to land on the mall at DC, so just so we can stop wondering about it. I think that would be the day the earth stood still. But you bring up the point of the whistleblower who said he has seen these things, and then you, you mentioned this guy, Bob Lazar, who also is kind of like the original one, who both of them say, I've seen a ship, we're reverse engineering the power that got it here. And it all folds into whether it's the day the earth stood still or watching being 12 years old like yourself and sitting in the theater up there on the North Shore and watching the Chariots of the Gods, or even thinking about Spielberg and how well he created that sense of paranoia and doubt, I think especially in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where they fake a leak of the bacterial in order to shut down the site around where Richard Dreyfuss is headed. So all that said, where do you fall? Do you believe? Do you not believe? And how should we think about it? Well, that's my problem, which is I can't bring myself to believe. I just can't believe. So in my gut, it's like my heart says yes, but my brain says no, because I still can't get by the fact that I always have thought that if this actually was happening, it wouldn't be ambiguous. It would just be very obvious to us. You would see it. I've never seen a UFO or a UAP, as they now call it. I don't know anyone personally who has. And even the people who are studying this, most of them haven't actually seen it, except for these pilots, I guess they've seen it. But you talk to them and they're studying it, they're interested. So unless we're being studied like bugs in a jar and there's aliens studying us and attempting to remain hidden, I don't see any reason why it would be so ambiguous. If there was a civilization on one of these planets where we're going to fly the Voyager, which is heading out of the solar system, it would just land and it would be picked up and found it. The fact that it, it's so secretive makes me not believe it. But see the problem I'm in? Because it's secretive makes you want to believe it. It's the catch-22. Yeah. Right. It's more interesting to live in a world where it exists. It's kind of fun to think about and believe in. And there's a lot of evidence that it does exist. Or I wouldn't even say evidence. There's a lot of testimony. The guy who says he saw him is Bob Lazar, who you mentioned, who came out 30 years ago and said he had been brought by Edward Tetler. The guy who Dr. Strangelove is based on and built a hydrogen bomb. He'd been sort of set by him out to this program where he reverse engineered these craft. And he's sort of been dismissed by a lot of people. He said this many, many years ago, but a lot of the things he said turned out to be true. We'll say one thing, and I thought of putting it in the story, but didn't. 
which is there's a poem by Cavafy called Waiting for the Barbarians. You know that poem? I encourage everybody to read that poem if you're thinking about UAPs and sightings, because while the last end of the poem is there are no barbarians, but it's too bad because the barbarians were kind of solution. And I think there's a real element of that, which is everybody feels like as a society, we're a little bit stuck. And we need kind of a metaphysical solution. And the aliens are a solution. So to quote another great poet, Bram Parker, we're sort of waiting for the UFO. Just as long as they don't have a book on board saying to serve man. That's all I'm saying, just in terms of Rod Serling. Yeah, but we could take those recipes and sort of just swap chicken and get a lot of delicious new takes on a very dish. That seems like the right place to end this. You can't talk about it without sounding crazy. I think all the David Lynch shows were about this, by the way. All right, Rich, thanks for opening our minds and expanding our horizons. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Ashley. Talk to you soon. Take care. Rich. Bye. Bye. If we can solve travel through space and time, surely we can come up with a solution for global warming, no? If they don't want us to blow up the planet, they surely don't want us to melt down the planet with climate change. Fab. All right. Well, where should we talk now? Should we go into... I would love to talk about Julian Sands and bring our next guest on. Sands, the acclaimed actor, went missing in January after he went hiking in the San Gabriel Mountains in California. Just a few weeks ago, his remains were found. And now we have his friend and fellow actor, Simon Callow, who wrote about Sands in this week's issue. A tragic and dramatic death, but as far as obituaries go, this was a fascinating one to read. We've got Simon Cowell on to remember his friend Julian Sands. Simon Callow is a British actor and director. He's won multiple Olivier Awards and the Screen Actors Guild Awards, been nominated for a million BAFTAs. He's an OBE, bless him. And he's also in my favorite movie, Michael, Four Weddings and a Funeral. That's right. We're not going to talk about that, though. Welcome, Simon Callow. Well, your story this week is a wonderful tribute to your friend, Julian Sands. Tell us about how you two first met. Well, oddly enough, we first met when I was doing a play in the East End of London in very dirty circumstances. Julian suddenly appeared as the assistant costume designer, and he was so so much classier than anything around him. He was incredibly elegantly dressed and extraordinarily madly handsome and taut, lean and sparkling man who was, in fact, almost completely silent, which made him all the more charismatic. So the costume designer would be measuring us up and he'd say 27 inches and Julian would write down 27 inches and so on. And we were all completely mesmerized by this young man, this elegant young person. So he said nothing. So we didn't get to know him at all. And he kept on popping up, strangely, all over the place in my life, as if we were destined to keep meeting. So the director, Derek Jarman, was about to make a film about the painter Caravaggio. And I went to visit Derek Jarman in his flat in the West End of London, pressed the bell, and there was this Julian again, wearing an extremely elegant white jacket, looking rather like a butler, and kind of ushering me in very gravely, and then was asked to read the other parts in the script, and then ushered me out very gravely indeed. But it was sort of just peculiar that he was everywhere. The next thing was that when I visited some friends of mine in an apartment, their apartment, and they said, well, we've got this amazing new lodger. We hardly ever see him. He just comes and goes. He's incredibly handsome. He's studying at the drama school up the road, and his name is Julian Sands. (laughs) Then the the next time one heard of him, I opened the Times, the London Times, very distinguished, and there was a review of a play written by Alderman Isherwood, which is almost never done, and It had received a revival 
and the director of the revival was Julian Sands. So he was everywhere. He was a student. He was a butler. He was an assistant costume designer. He was a director. And then quite shortly after that, he burst onto the cinematic scene in The Killing Fields, which he gave a very striking cameo as a Sunday Times reporter. And then the next time after that was when I sat opposite him at a supper table to celebrate the beginning of shooting of A Room with a View. So he was then suddenly surrounded by Maggie Smith and Judy Dench and Denham Elliott and Helena Bonham Carter and all the rest. So there was something uncanny about all of that. I liked him immensely when we got together. He was just extraordinarily charming and very, very intelligent. And there was this kind of enigma about him, a smiley enigma. But (laughs) there was a sort of wild man inside Julian which could leap out at any moment. And it could be quite disturbing and life-threatening because when we were doing that famous scene in A Room with a View where we swim naked in that little pond, we were sitting around for a very, very long time wearing underpants and you go a bit bored. Julian's prowling around restlessly. And he started, he had a metal coat hanger and he started manipulating it very, very fast. And he said, we used to do this when I was at public school and when it gets right to the top of it, it gets very, very slapped it on my arm and very hot. I can actually see the scar here where he did that. But Rupert Graves and I were, I mean, completely bewildered by this outburst of primitivism. But that was very Julian. Things like that happened all the time and unforgivable things, really, which you always forgave him. Very strange. Tell us about what happened that time that he came over to your flat on Earl's Court and you were not available to have lunch with him, unfortunately. How did he respond? Well, I happened to be in Tunisia at the time. He hadn't bothered to inquire, and so he left a message for me to say that he'd been there. But unlike anybody else who would have left a message, he got his key and he carved a phrase into the wallpaper which said, the brander was here. Well, I'd branded him the brander after he branded me. And he remained the brander for as long as I knew him. But so you got this very strange sort of outburst. He just thought it was hilarious. He thought it was, nothing could be funny. And another occasion, he actually ripped the door off the wall in one of my apartments. It was sort of high spirits, but it was something a bit more than that. It was just wild. He was a Yorkshireman like Heathcliff in Wuthering Heights. And like that famous character, there was something almost primitive or primal about Julian, despite this extraordinarily elegant, buffed and honed exterior. That was part of what made him so interesting and such fun. And he was also very, very serious. You could engage him on very serious conversations. There was nothing he was more serious about, though, than mountain climbing. Alas, that was a huge, huge passion of his. And I'm absolutely sure he chose to walk up Mount Baldy in those impossible conditions precisely because they were impossible conditions, and he was determined to overcome them. He would not be daunted by anything, but as it happens, very sadly, he was. What exactly do we know about his death, Simon, and and the circumstances surrounding it? Well, I think very little. I mean, very little indeed, until we only just now, I mean, it's so recent, isn't it, that his remains were discovered. I presume people are doing forensic tests and all of that and will be able to tell us something. He just went up the mountain in circumstances that no sane person would go up a mountain. But then, as I say, he was just this wild boy, and I'm sure he was absolutely certain that he could overcome it. It would be a huge triumph for him. He was sort of like a sort of Nietzschean superman in that way, I'm sure. He thought he was absolutely indestructible. 
that he looked it, even you know, in the 50s, his musculature was that musculature of people who climb mountains, not people who work out in, in gymnasiums, but people who climb up like this and have to be taught. He was that, that was him. It's fascinating, just, I mean, he truly left his mark on you. He left his mark on your home. He was a man who wanted to leave his mark on the world, clearly. And he's, I love you. He was so Nietzschean and, but like romantic in that sense of, even as you sort of described Heathcliff, a man not on the moors, but on that mountain. And when you look back at his creative work and what he's done and your remembrance this week about A Room with a View, are there other moments that you saw him performing or in his work that you think is just a glimpse of that protean talent that he had? Well, I'm rather inclined to feel that Julian didn't, because of the way he looked, didn't always get cast in the right kind of parts. He was often cast as incredibly sleek and elegant figure. But actually, I would like to have seen him play Conan the Barbarian. I mean, he was, he was I said uh, in my piece that he could have played Hannibal or Sir Richard Burton, the great explorer. It was people who do pit themselves against the universe in a way. And I would like it to have seen him play more parts like that. But he always had a, I mean, it's partly physical, just, just facial and bodily charm. And this constant twinkle in the eye that he had was incredibly engaging and dangerous. But it wasn't so often that I saw him at full stretch in that way. But he was most unexpectedly, the, the last thing that I knew of him doing, I, I know he did other things after this, but he did, I think he must have met Harold Pinter at some, and they must have fallen to talking about Pinter's poetry, which is the least known part of his output. And Julian made it a sort of mission to introduce the poetry of Harold Pinter to the public. And he did it in the most gentle and almost circumspect way he offered it to the public, these poems of Pinter. And Harold Pinter himself was pretty a wild man himself. Incredibly strong, dangerous man. You always thought he was going to give you a left hook if you anyway displeased him, which you felt could be very easily done. But his poetry is quite defiant sometimes, but it's also very economical. And Julian seized on that and just found the sort of particular energy. But the way in which he approached the public was, in that instance, extraordinarily courteous and easy and relaxing. He relaxed the audience very nicely in that show, as directed by his friend John Malkovich, whom I'm sure had some influence on the way he played it. But that was a very charming and little-known side of Julian. Well, Simon, you've done such a beautiful tribute to him and given us such new insight into what he was really like as a person. So thank you so much for your beautiful story and for joining us here. Thank you. Great pleasure. Thank you for being here, Simon. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Speaking of Hollywood now, Ashley... I, I want to go to this story, which is about one of the great Hollywood romances. Bogey and Bacall, Michael, it could have gone so many different ways, right? When they got together, she was 20 years old. He was an alcoholic in his 40s, but it all worked out for the good. A true Hollywood ending. Yeah, and no one knows it better than William Mann, who is the author of several books, including Tinseltown, Murder, Morphine, and Madness at the Dawn of Hollywood. He's here to talk about his latest book, Bogey and Bacall, the surprising true story of Hollywood's greatest love affair. Welcome, William. Thank you very much for having me. William, Bogey and Bacall had one of the most famous meet-cutes in Hollywood history. What happened? What's so great when you watch To Have and Have Not is that the moment that Slim and Steve fall in love is actually the same moment that Bogey and Bacall fall in love in real life. 
Howard Hawks had decided to use this rehearsal bit that McCall had done where she had asked her co-star if he needs needs her just to whistle. Hawks and Bogart liked it so much, they actually put it into the movie. And so there's McCall telling Bogart, hey, if you need me, just whistle. You know how to whistle, don't you? Put your lips together and blow. And it's the moment where the sparks were flying not only on the screen, but off the screen. So if you ever want to know exactly what it, when it was and what it was that caused Bogey and Bacall to fall in love, that's it. Yeah, when it was, what it was, and what love looks like when it's actually, when that arrow is actually zinging through someone's heart. Yeah, and it's great when you actually have cinematic confirmation. So they fall in love and then take us through where your sort of excerpt this week opens in airmail where they're down on Malabar Farm in Ohio and the drama behind their wedding day that's underlying what should be a picture-perfect romance. Yeah, the great legend of Bogey and Bacall, a great love story. I mean, it's true. It's There's nothing untrue about that legend. But one thing that the legend often tends to gloss over is that very large age difference. She was 20 when they got married, he was 45. And love knows no age, of course, and they made it work. But it does come with challenges when you have that kind of age difference. And Bacall's two uncles, Jack and Charlie, who were her father figures, her own father had disappeared when she was very young, they were not happy. Charlie wrote letters to Betty, as she was known privately, please don't do this. This is, this is not wise. And so it's interesting that neither of her uncles are there at the wedding at Malabar. That wasn't just an accident. They didn't have a conflict in their schedule. She pointedly does not mention it in her memoir. And the two most important men, father figures in her life, not being at their wedding really speaks volumes. But then they do get married and you're dealing with a guy, as you said, profound age difference, but Bogey also three previous wives. He's also pretty much known as a hard-drinking carouser around Hollywood. He's at a very different phase in life, but here's got his beautiful wife at home, but he's still out drinking, and it doesn't make those early years easy on them, as, as you dramatically sort of retell in your book. Yeah, McCall was, she was very savvy. She was very clever about how to deal with men, especially older men. She'd been doing it for a number of years. But the reality was, once she was married to this older man, who was hard-drinking, hard-smoking, increasingly ill and unhealthy, I think the reality hit home and she was expected to stay home. Bogey had this this belief that his wife's career should always be in support of his. It's what doomed his first three marriages. And Bacall was never going to live with that. That was something that I think she did not expect. It was very heady and very exciting and very romantic, those early courtship years. And then suddenly she's married and she's sitting home alone. Her dog gets killed. She can't even get Bogey to show her some sympathy at that moment. And she's just really at a point where she knows that if this marriage is going to work, she's going to have to do some work. Which is, the dog, ironically, is named Droopy. You have a very poignant scene where, if you could just tell us about that scene where she's at home and what happens to Droopy and what does she do and how this is sort of like the moment everything crystallizes for her, right? Sure. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. When I was writing that, I was found myself being emotional because they all have pets that we love. And Droopy had been with McCall since she was a teenager when she was an unknown walking through Greenwich Village trying going on auditions. He was always there when she came home dejected. She loved Droopy very, very much. And when her mother brought the dog, the Cocker Spaniel, out to Hollywood, it was just this great, joyous reunion. And so when Droopy gets hit by a car, this is huge. This is the end of her childhood. This is Bacall being cut off from everything she once knew and loved and everything that once gave her security. And there's Bogey out drinking with his pals. When he calls, he's 
very late in calling. She tells him she's in tears and he brushes it off and says, come join us. She does. And it's the worst decision she could have made because Ogie just continued to drink and have a good time. And she sat there in the corner bereft. And it's that moment that she really realizes this is going to be, if this marriage is going to work, she's going to have to find ways to make Bogey understand that she's not going to be like his three previous ones. We know then they sort of go on to live these fantastic lives, especially when they're being public and testifying in front of Congress. When you look back, do you have a favorite performance of each of them besides to have and have not? Well, I think Bogey's best performances are in the Maltese Falcon, Casablanca, the African Queen treasure of Sierra Madre. I don't think he ever gave a bad. Bogey was, he was a consummate actor, always trying to do more, push his craft. Even some of the earlier pictures like Black Legion, of course, Petrified Forest. Bacall was not the actor that Bogey was. And I think she knew that. I think she knew that she was never going to rise to his heights in terms of acting ability. Though she had a charisma that comes through as in to have and have not. She's just magnificent. No wonder she was such a smash hit after that film. And she's really good in all of their films together. I think Dark Passage, she's kind of underplaying and she's going against the kind of sultry part that she'd always played previously. And I think she's very effective. And she's really good in Key Largo, even though she's given very little to do. She's just so solid. Well, William, it's a terrific story about two fantastic actors. And we thank you for being here. The book, once again, is called Bogey and Bacall, the surprising true story of Hollywood's greatest love affair. Okay, speaking of movies, Ashley, that brings us to the weekend. Fantastico. Surely you've got something to recommend. I do. Outside of waiting to see Mission Impossible, which is now in theaters, and we can all talk about it next week. Like a lot of you, Ashley, I'm always interested in what Steven Soderbergh is up to. And this week, I checked out his new six-part show on Max called Full Circle. It's a smart, intricately plotted crime thriller, which is centered on a bungled kidnapping in Manhattan's upper crust that pulls in all these disparate characters from across the city's social economic spectrum. It stars Claire Danes and Zazie Beetz and Dennis Quaid, spoiler alert, with a ponytail. But like I say, I'm only one episode in, but I will be watching for the next one. It's called Full Circle and it is on Max. And you, my dear, how about you? You're going to be so proud of me, Michael. I did manage to read three books over our holiday. I know, I know. Two of them I read in like a matter of four hours. One was Emma Klein's book, The Guest. Totally enjoyable. And then I really enjoyed Yellow Face by Rebecca Kwong. Have you read that, Michael? I haven't, but I've heard great things about it. So I'll put it on my list now. Yeah, I definitely sat down and read that in one sitting when I had a cold one day. It was incredible and a great sort of send up of the publishing industry and the world of internet culture. I really enjoyed it. And then my friend Trisha forced me to read The Covenant of Water, which is Abraham Bergese's book, sort of magnum opus. It's like massive. It's an Oprah's book club thing, but I really liked it. It tells the story of a family in India over the course of basically 100-ish years, but it's really beautiful, immersive writing, lots of good stuff to read. Sounds wonderful. I love it. And of course, this week, because I'm home in Kansas, I'm going to see every blockbuster at the movie theater here. So I will report back next week. We can talk about Indiana Jones if you're so inclined. Great. We can have Indiana Jones, Mission Impossible, and then somewhere down the road, Barbie. Oh, absolutely. Barbie's coming out on the 21st of July. Not like I'm counting down every single minute. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. We wish you a marvelous weekend. Michael, will you please read us out? Morning.
Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram and Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe to Spotify or Apple Music, but most of all, thank you again for joining us.